Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. face and uh, today's guest is Mark Kingwell from the University of Toronto. He's a Canadian professor of philosophy and he's been working at U of T for well I'm not exactly sure how many years but I know he's published quite a few books uh, including A Civil Tongue, Dreams of Millennium, Better Living, The World We Want, articles uh, with interesting and wonderful titles like Interpretation, Dialogue, and the Just Citizen, Mad People, and Ideologues, The Plain Truth About Common Sense, which I definitely want to talk with him about. So thank you for joining me uh, here today, Mark. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I was uh, thrilled that you responded to my email so quickly, so thanks for that. Uh, It's one of my uh, uh, perverse uh, incentives is to try to get to inbox zero, um, which I have actually done a few times, but I realized that it, it's, it's futile. It's, it's kind of pathology. You know? It's a bit of a pox sort of, email on society, isn't it? It's... Well, you know, I, I was just reading um, a little passage by Doug, Douglas Rushkoff, who's uh, been a friend of mine for many years, and he, he published a book last year called Present Shock. And he said the reason, the reason people have this uh, problem with e- uh, email is that they see it as storage rather than flow. And he said he, his, his solution to email is to to see it as a kind of um, stream of things that are going by and you, you respond to certain things and pick up on others and you yes. let others ride. And uh, I can't do that. I guess I'm just too task-oriented. I, I see my inbox as a kind of to-do list. Well, that's everyone, a, yeah. yeah. 
everyone says that's the, mat, the, the road to madness, but um, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're mad, what are you going to do? You can't. Well, do if that's your starting point, why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend uh, who probably has, and I'd have to double check on this with a phone call later, but I bet you he's in the 12 to 13,000 range of emails in his inbox. And I, so speaking of a pathway to Matt, I'd go out of my mind. I would jump off. I would jump off the old Islington Bridge in a heart. Yeah, I don't think. You know? I think. I think that's not flow anymore. That's drowning <laughs> or, or being drowned or something. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Mark. So I'm going to just uh, what what grabbed my interest uh, for for this podcast interview was a review that you recently wrote uh, on a new book by Curtis White, uh, and I'm I'm hoping we can chat chat a little bit about it. Um, but it was an article out of uh, the Globe and Mail uh, on July. Sorry, June 14th. Wow. June 14th, so over a month ago, taking on scientism's big bullies, Hitchens, Dawkins, and Pinker. What? Uh, so, I mean, it, for those of you out there listening, it's a great review. Uh, try, try to grab it. Uh, it's still online. Sometimes the globe will pull these things down, but it's wonderful. It's funny. It's, <laughs> it's very funny, actually, and, and, and insightful. But uh, So can you tell me a little bit more, Mark, about wh- why are these guys, or why are you viewing these guys as bullies? Well, I don't, and I... I uh, that's really White's idea that, that, that they're bullies, uh, and I didn't write that headline. This is one of the things that you, you constantly have to tell people: is that headlines are written by people you never meet and don't <laughs> right. even know. Right. Uh, Very good. I, I reviewed the book sympathetically, but not uncritically, and that, and that in itself seemed like too much uh, attention or, or approval because it was a maelstrom of, of vile, anonymous. Uh, comments uh, attacking me attacking white it's really just kind of amazing those are the bullies i mean those are the online anonymous wow. commenters are the real bullies uh, i think of all those, the cases that that white brings together are actually quite distinct and i didn't have time to go into this so you know um christopher hitchens uh who i knew slightly uh he was a polemicist not a bully mm-hmm. he wanted to argue but he, he also knew that he wasn't a philosopher either he wasn't trying to uh, defend a consistent and coherent position at every moment. He was he was going after what he saw as, as depredations, mm-hmm. uh, and his kind of aggressive um, argumentative atheism. I don't really have a problem with. I had more of a problem with his stance on the Iraq War. Right. Uh, with Dawkins, I think now that he has moved on from the earliest stuff, which you know the meme um, book, uh, uh, Selfish Gene, which I think is brilliant, uh, has now moved into I think a more kind of untenable position where. He seems to see himself as always right about everything, and that that's a, a problem. Pinker is, I think, a probably a, a good uh, popularizer, and he's he's a target of whites because he stands for uh, the, the sort of world-devouring neuroscience. You know, neuroscience right. is the explanation of everything from creativity to monogamy to the lack of monogamy, and so on and so on. And I so White's book is itself a polemic, and I wanted to give it the proper due, which is that. There's, there should be some pushback on this, and not just from people who are religious believers. Well, I was going to say, is 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 White a, a evangelical? Is he a, no, is he a Catholic? A, no, he's an atheist. He's, he's an atheist, a... and so am I. And uh, I think what what happens when you when you have these debates is you try to uh, not stake out middle ground, but just have a nuanced position where you say, I'm an atheist, but I don't think that it's it's um, true to say that religion has brought no value to the world. I mean, that's just a crazy claim. Or uh, I'm somebody who's worried about scientism in the form, say, of big pharma, but I'm not against science. You know, I mean, that's right, crazy. Right, right. Right? But you, you try to say those kind of two-step things, 
and you get immediately boxed in to one side or the other because this is the, the rhetorical world in which we, we currently live. So that's an interesting comment. I want to come back to this whole atheist and uh, science sort of dialogue here. But why, why, why do we seem to, 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 to lean towards this polarization of, 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 every, of everything? It's, yeah, well, I, you know. I was, you know, I'm tempted to offer a neuroscientific explanation, <laughs> which is <laughs> very funny. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, when I think of of um, the p- particular pathologies of debate, which has really been my my uh, concern for a long time, from my earliest work trying to defend political dialogue and and political virtues like civility and and respect. Um, I really think that there's something key to the diffusion of responsibility that comes with anonymity. And that's why I think comment comments boards are by and large a blight because right. they, they encourage costless attack. You know, there's nothing wrong with vigorous debate. Absolutely nothing. It's, it's the keystone to intellectual life in, in many ways, but you have to take responsibility. You have to be accountable for the things you do. And if you launch an attack, uh, you, you have to be prepared to defend the fact mm-hmm. that you launched it. Uh, this is why I, I find it, it bizarre that, you know, that, the rhetoric immediately heats up because there's this um, diffusion of responsibility plus the usual incentive to get the better of the other side. So I talk about this in, in my last collection of essays about how uh, incivility is a kind of what economists would call a collective action problem. Everybody's behaving from a narrow sense of what makes rational sense to them, self-interested rational sense. And then everybody ends up losing because in pursuing their own individual advantage, the whole scene of dialogue or discourse uh, becomes a, a, a kind of cesspool. So th- that's you know a different kind of non-neuroscientific explanation. I guess the neuroscientific explanation would be something like, you know, people really like to um, vent their violence, and if they can convince themselves that they're sounding smart when they do it, then even more so. Right. Why do you think scientists, or some of these uh, types of scientists, are so dogmatic in their approach to to this? Uh, this, I guess, what some are calling new atheism. Yeah, I, I want to be clear on this. That um, unlike White, I don't think that this is a problem of science. I think this is a problem of ideology. And when when that ideology gets allied with things like cultural interest or financial interest or both, then that's when you get the bullying. Uh, and moreover. This is something that, that Curtis White just barely touches on, though he does mention it. Uh, you get a kind of, of uh, political and, and social power, uh, which is disproportionate to the intellectual contribution. Uh, it's, this is not helped by the fact that, say, in my own discipline of philosophy, a lot of people would like to sort of see themselves as scientists, and they, they think of their work in, in those terms. Whereas I, I come from a philosophical uh, tradition that's more... Uh, you might say, um, text-based or even literary. I mean, I see this as a conversation, which is right. ongoing. And it's inherently anti-ideological because it has no end point. It has no final sense of, of being right. It's constantly bringing its own existence into question. So do you, do you, see, do you see all of this? And I'm kind of embracing, you know, we're, we're, on, we're on radio here, but do you, do you see all of this as I embrace the room here uh, as a conversation? Uh, I mean, are, are you are you asking me if I'm a kind of um, radical anti-realist? Uh, uh, that, is, is that the question? I, I want to um, be sure. What, no, I what don't you're think. Asking. I don't think that is the question. I think you know, is is, is it um, 
is it uh, is it relational? Is it you know at the risk of sounding trite, you know, is it all about relationships? Is it about community? Is it about dialogue? Is it about working through the issues together rather than you know standing on one side of the debate and saying here we are and planting my you know uh, my epistemological flag in the ground? Right. Yes, I do think that, and and the best scientists I know, all the good scientists I know, think the same kind of thing. You know, hmm. they say there's a reason there's a difference between doing physics and doing chemistry. It's it's might be the same object in some general philosophical sense, but if you look at how it reacts to forces in motion versus its composition based on the periodic table, you're looking at it in different ways. There's nothing wrong with doing both. In fact, we need to do both. Right. Uh, and all of it, and and we can we could I could add, um, you know, an ontologist from my discipline would would say, well, you know, the fact that there is an object at all is kind of interesting. Let's talk about that. You know. Right. Right. So these these are ways of going on. These are ways of deepening the human experience, um, relating to each other, as you say, exploring the you know the, the profound and mysterious gift of linguisticality. Hmm. You know that 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 we are suspended in language in this this um, kind of I don't know I, in, you know. It's, Language itself fails when you try to talk about it. <laughs> well, that's um, yeah, it's a pretty marvelous thought actually, yeah. and it, and inescapable, and and um, from our own position a priori. You know, we we are thrown into language. We, as as Martin Heidegger uh, put it, language speaks us rather than the other way around. You know, we right. sometimes delude ourselves for, or for short periods of time, for efficiency's sake, we think of language as a tool. You know, I'm going to issue an order. Uh, uh, perform an, uh, an utterance that, you know, does something. Um, but for the most part, um, and in fact, always, it's, it's um, language that is really sort of throwing us around the world rather than the other way around. Right, right. I remember uh, quite a few years ago reading a piece by Dawkins, and I think it was in the Skeptical Inquirer or something along those lines, and I, I believe it was called The Improbability of God, and he just went on this um, emotive attack Basically, uh, and 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 I remember finishing it and thinking, wow! And this guy is considered to be one of the most important thinkers of our time. Now, maybe I'm, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm overstating it, but I was really quite stunned by that. And I just, I, I remember thinking, then, wow! Did this guy go to some sort of parochial school where he was beaten with a bamboo stick? <laughs> like, where does this anger come from? Where does this yeah. emotion, you know? And even Hitchens, you know, I've, you know, in the in the past uh, watched him and, and a few others, and there's just this deep anger. There, that that, that yeah. is I find perplexing. Well, there there are good reasons for some of it. Certainly, you know, there, there great wickedness has been wrought in the name of God. There's well, no indeed, yeah, yeah, no doubt, yeah, and, absolutely, and and maybe more specifically, institutional pathologies that created the opportunity for you know priests to abuse children over many years. Uh, uh, these these are things that that have to be openly faced. Uh, I don't think. I don't think anybody gets much out of one one level of um, fervor or um, in, immunity from challenge, from rational challenge, which is another way to define an ideology, something which cannot be falsified. Uh, you don't get right. any any traction by meeting one ideology with another. And I think that's what has happened to at least mm-hmm. part of the atheism debate. I want to say part of, because, you know, I still think Sam Harris, for example, is a thoughtful guy. And, uh, and... But I, I'm just, you know, just to put it on the other side, um, for a variety of reasons, I was, at, I was among them, I was at a conference uh, at a Catholic university in Australia recently, uh, and we got talking about G.K. Chesterton. Uh-huh, yes. Most, most people probably know as the author of the Father Brown mystery stories, or maybe 
Um, there's his political thriller called The Man Who Was Thursday. But he was, in, in his own time, best known as a Christian apologist. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading his book called Orthodox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is embracing, I mean, you know, I'm, as a philosopher and an atheist, I'm reading it and I'm, I'm silently finding what I think are the weak spots in his many arguments. But it's an ingenious and witty and, and very, very um, persuasive book. And it, it, it has the right tone, I think, which is, yes, there's some mockery. Uh, there's a lot of paradox, which is Chesterton style. There's a lot of uh, appeals to common sense and to, the, to um, things that we can all recognize as the best parts of ourselves. And... Uh, it just, you realize it comes from another age, that, mm. that he could have a, a polemic, an ongoing polemic with George Bernard Shaw, who was an unbeliever, and that yet the two of them were good friends, and that they could engage in these witty, high-spirited, and very, very serious but playful debates, and everybody wins. when that Everybody happens. wins. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, actually. Everybody wins. I saw about 15 years ago at the Shaw Festival uh, two actors, Chesterton and uh, Shaw, uh, on stage and basically having a having an argument and it was one, part of their lunchtime series which I don't think they do anymore and it was absolutely marvelous it was about 45 minutes long and it was just it was fun and uh, I wish I could recommend it to others anyway um, I'm glad to hear you're reading that that's awesome he's uh, he's an incredibly quotable guy isn't he I mean, yeah he's, he's, absolutely. Up, he's, up, he's up there with Oscar Wilde in my opinion I know well and he's got great lines about Oscar Wilde written in a Wildean <laughs> style um, so yeah it's uh, every every other sentence practically could be an epigram. Can I ask you one more question about atheism and so on? Do, do you think, do you, I'm going to ask you it either way, um, you can choose to answer it if you, if you want to, but do you, think, do you think that nihilism follows from atheism? I, read, I did read an, a review of, um, hmm, that was a review, an article in Harper's, now I'm just going from memory, uh, not long ago, and, and uh, the writer of this particular piece suggested that what he, uh, as an atheist, he was an atheist, but his trouble with, with some of the, uh, these guys that were railing against uh, religion, they were left with nothing. Mm-hmm. And where do you go from there? Do you go to mind-altering drugs? Do you go to you know, some other kind of uh, addiction? Or uh, you know, where, do you, where do you find meaning? And I think his answer was film, art, and literature. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, have, you, have you reflected on that at all? A lot. I, I think I recall the piece. It was actually a review essay of, of among other books, um, Alain de Botton's recent book about religion, which was okay. sort of shallow defense of, of secular nothingness. So he's, he's another guy who's not doing the unbelieving cause any favors um, for different reasons. Uh, I think we have to be careful to define what nihilism is. I, I have always been persuaded by Nietzsche's definition, which is roughly that nihilism isn't the absence of meaning. It's just the fact, not just, it is the fact that all the meaning there is, is of human creation. And um, that really links up to my earlier point about, about um, the language upgrade, if you like. I mean, that's where meaning resides. Meaning resides in the exchanges that we make discursively in every form that we contrive to make them. Uh, so there's no lack of meaning. I mean, that's not our problem. Our problem is that there's, there's a, there may be, um, some of us are persuaded that, unfortunately, there is no absolute meaning, no supernatural meaning. Right. <clears throat> so what that means is, uh, you know, is at once very, very chastening, you know, very humbling, and on the other hand, um, very, very awesome, you know, because it's, it's decisively up to us and only us to make the meanings and to make good ones and interesting ones rather than bad ones and dumb ones. So uh, I take it as a challenge. 
rather than as something to be um, despairing over. And I, you know, the, the sort of the aesthetic answer is is right, but it's only partly right because there are other things that we we need to do with meaning besides, um, say, you know, divert ourselves or entertain ourselves. Um, and the greatest art, of course, points to this. We need to um, question and deepen our self-understanding. We need to think about uh, what kinds of gifts we have received from the past and what kinds of legacies we want to bestow in the future. Uh, we have to think of the direction and purpose of, of what, what is within our control or our singular lives. I mean, these are traditional philosophical questions, but they gain a kind of urgency, I think, a, a really important urgency from the sense that um, there is just this life and whatever we make, we have to make ourselves and take responsibility. I want to get to your essay, Building, Dwelling, Acting, um, before we end the, the podcast, because I want to I talk a little bit about that idea of freedom, choice, and responsibility, and about you know, this, uh, what you just commented on, about how you know, we need to think about these things. We need to sort of draw this meaning uh, out of, uh, I guess, life. Uh, and uh, so I'm uh, yesterday with a friend at uh, the Lightbox watching uh, The Act of Killing, Joshua Oppenheimer's new film. And right. It's a difficult, difficult piece. Second time I've seen it, actually. I saw it at the film festival last year. So you've got this very dark, comical, macabre film about genocide. And you walk out of it thinking, okay, that's going to be seen by about 100 people. You know, when when you you know uh, gifted in hyperbole, Mark. But you know, it, it's going to be seen by quite a few people. But is it only really going to be preaching to the converted? And so, you know, Eden and I on the ride home on the train, we're we're thinking and reflecting on this, thinking how how do you get people engaged? How do you get people to think about these things? You've you you, you know, I, I noticed online you were speaking recently on the true value and purpose of post secondary education. You you've written an essay on common sense. I mean, I think all of these things are connected. I guess my question to you is, and I've got a dozen or so around this idea, but how do you get people to care about this stuff? How do you get folks to start thinking through these issues and saying, I'm not going to go to James Bond tonight, but I'm actually going to go see Oppenheimer's film, The Act of Killing. Right. Well, first of all, I guess I want to say it's not, that doesn't have to be an either-or choice. Okay, fair enough. And, yeah. uh, you know, I will certainly go see the new James Bond movie like I've got to see. <laughs> That's right. Movie. So Even will that, I. You know, even even the the punishing Roger Moore ones, um, I've been to them all. <laughs> um, so there's that. I mean, we we are uh, eccentric and and varied creatures, and uh, I I sometimes get um, strange looks from my colleagues, especially uh, who have maybe more traditional clusters of interests around academic life, you know, classical music, for example, because I I I like uh, I like pro football. I like baseball. I like um, fishing. I like, you know, I, I wrote a book about cocktails. Uh, uh, you know, they, it's, it's a rich life. I mean, we, the gift of being here is so, so amazing that um, it's, it would be crazy. I mean, to use the religious language that I was brought up in, it would be a sin not to take advantage of, of every single possible good thing. Um, and the good things sometimes include the painful things. So uh, the things that stretch us, uh, but to answer your question, I, I, I guess as a teacher, um, I, you, you, you basically the answer is any technique that works is a good one. You know, it's, it's the, the part of, of uh, philosophical life where I'm a total pragmatist. If, if you can lever something with, with a technique, then it's, it's good. And I mean everything from jokes and YouTube videos and sort of standard lectures, you know, entertainment value to, um, 
sometimes the personal narrative is the thing that, that hooks people, just like it is in politics uh, often, maybe too often. Uh, but if you have your, your eye on the prize, you know, if, if you know that what you're trying to do is get someone to not necessarily think differently, but just <clears throat> think through, uh, then it, you can use all kinds of techniques. And, then, and that's just in the classroom. I mean, you mentioned um, some of my range of, of written stuff. I, I try to write wherever they'll have me, you know, if it's mm. a newspaper or a magazine, um, or if it's doing, you know, this, this kind of, uh, thing, it'll be on the internet, then, uh, that's all good because it's all about the ideas that I think are important and the ways of thinking, you know, critical thinking that I think are important. Is that, is um, that what the true value of post-secondary education is kind of in a cracked nutshell? It's about, yeah, about I, thinking, I, it's about asking questions. Yes. I mean, I, it's such a truistic kind of answer that I hesitate sometimes to make it, but it is the right answer, and it's the right answer for a reason. Not because, you know, so-called critical thinking skills will help you achieve career success. Right. So that may, right. That may be true, right? Yeah, sure, um, sure. But that's not the reason that it's valuable. It's valuable because it's part of the human experience. It's the conversation with, you know, as, as the, the other cliche goes, the best that has been thought and written. Uh, and, and disputing itself, the idea of best as part of that, right? Say this canon versus that canon. These are all the questions that education raises. One thing I, I sometimes say, is, um, and this is a very, you know, it's not original to me by at least two and a half millennia. Um, <laughs> one of the ways that you get people out of their, their comfort zone, or their patterns, their um, comfortable patterns of thinking is by sly mechanisms. You know, it's almost a kind of seduction. Hmm. Where you you say you just take something and maybe twist it into a new light, or you, you you get them thinking that they're learning one thing, and it turns out that you wanted them to learn something else all all together. Um, well, and that's and that's what's so brilliant, isn't it? About 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 a well thought out question. Yes, I mean the the Socratic is dialogue. The, you yeah, know, that's what we call it, and that Socrates, um, at least as put, portrayed by Plato, which is you know more invented than real, but yes, what, yes. what comes down to us. Um, that Socrates, uh, not always, you know, he's pretty declarative a lot of the time, and a lot of his questions are, are feigned, but it's that process. You know, it's that um, I'm leading you along, and not because I necessarily know the answer myself, but maybe precisely because I don't either. You know, that true, true yeah. devotion to yeah. the doctrine of ignorantia. Well, and, and being comfortable with uncertainty on some level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I watched um, I watched Religulous uh, recently, Bill Maher's film. Um, uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. So Bill Bill Maher's pretty, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he's a polemicist, I suppose. He's an entertainer. Um, I, uh, he's a funny guy. I mean, all of those things. But but again, there's there's this there's this anger that seems to come out in the film as he rails against Christianity and Catholicism for about 50 minutes, and then starts mm-hmm. to take other religions apart. Um, what <laughs> What I find, uh, or at least one of the thoughts I had while I was watching, is again, where you know, where does where does this anger come from, and is he really pissed off about the fact that he doesn't know, and just wishes religious folk would say the same damn thing? <laughs> I don't know either. Instead of this, again, saying, "Hey, you just got to go here to this text, or you've got to look here for the evidence," you know, is yeah. that really what we're quibbling about here? <laughs> I mean, this is the problem with a lot of the um, the recent atheist material. I think is that it it, um, it takes too easy a target. I mean, it's very easy to target biblical literalism or fundamentalism of various kinds. Uh, very easy to target people who believe that you know if you disagree with them, you're going to hell and so on. 
Uh, these are not the religious people I know. I mean, I, I'll tell you, frankly, uh, I was raised in a Catholic family, and um, that's not my parents, you know, even though right. they are still believers. And I went to this, this conference recently, which was quite interesting, because I think I was the only unbeliever among the speakers. And, uh, hmm. and it, was, it was genuine, rigorous intellectual exchange. Now, of course, there were a couple of wackos there, and, and <laughs> uh, you know, you're going to get them. But I... I you know, I see actually a lot more thoughtfulness. People are not, this is, in a way, it's the same mistake that demagogues make or, or people who think that they, should, they can manipulate democratic politics. They don't take people seriously enough. They think somehow that people are just voters who can be manipulated, and then every time they manage to manipulate some, they get reinforced. But, um, you know, people come to believe things for all kinds of complicated reasons, yes. and unless you start from there, from a kind of fundamental respect, then I think you're always going to be making mistakes. You may win, you know, you may win the election, you may win the argument, right. Right. but you're, you're, you're going to win for losing because uh, you haven't respected the other. Uh, years ago when I started at York, I was uh, seeing uh, a specialist, a doctor, and she was asking me all these questions. What are you doing with your life? Stress, you know, what do you drink and what do you smoke and all these different things. And, <clears throat> oh, I just started to study philosophy, uh, you know, kind of part-time while I'm working. Oh, well, that in the quarter is going to get you a phone call. Nice. Yeah, exactly. This is, this from your doctor. This was a doctor. And I mean, I guess she thought she was being funny at the time. And I yeah. have to tell you, I probably laughed. And yeah. I've, But Mark, I've told this story a hundred times. I've written yeah. about it uh, in a small article I had published a while, about five, six years ago at a university newspaper. Why the heck did you get into philosophy? <laughs> Clearly, you thought it was going to give you more than a phone call, as did I. But uh, um, Yeah, by the way, it takes 50 cents to make a paper. <laughs> that's now, so. true. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you can even find a payphone, they're, they're That's disappearing right, yeah. urban. Yes. Uh, you know, of course, I I've had my share of those those encounters, yes. and I I've written about them too. Um, I wrote about one recently that's also in this, the collection I mentioned, uh, published last fall, called "Unruly Voices," and it was a judge at a dinner party, and uh, and she, she asked me what I did, and I told her, and I thought, you know. Perhaps at this stage of my career, when I've I've published a number of books and won some prizes and you know done these things, and I seem to be in some sense a success, I won't have to deal with this. And she she deflected it one generation. She said, "You teach philosophy. Do you ever tell your students what the hell they're going to do with that?" <laughs> <laughs> so now it's my fault, right? And I realized, oh yeah, so you you're never not to blame. If you if you choose to study it, you're to blame for being foolish. If you choose to teach it, you're to blame for being somehow an enabler of foolishness. That's right, misleading others. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, the only answer to that question is, it goes back to the, the one about liberal education in general. I mean, I got into philosophy because I loved it. And right, right. I continue to love it. And I, I made my practical choices, they were still practical choices, but they're like practical choices when, when you're married and in love. You know, you, you make them and you have to force in an encounter with realities like mortgage rates and things like that, but you make them in a context of love. You make them uh, out of your desire to to keep the beloved, you know, in in a place of love. Uh, and I, I, you know, I use this language sometimes when people are like you, you're talking about all these dusty texts, you know. Yes. Yeah. And but to me, it's it's a living thing, you know. The, the philosophical tradition is a living tradition. It it, it lives and breathes in all of us who. And I don't just mean academic, you know, it's, it's yeah, anybody yeah. who picks up, anybody who thinks a question through, um, joins us together. Now I'm sounding like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but, um, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but it, yeah, um, a little more like Yoda, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got my words in the wrong order. If I'm yeah. trying to be Yoda, but uh, so that's the answer. I mean, I I I kept doing it for as long as I reasonably could without going into debt. Uh, and unfortunately, most of my students are going to be in debt whether they like it or not. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then by stages, I I was able to you know I feel very blessed. I, well, I think it. just doing it because you love it, I think, is is marvelous. I think that's a, that's a that's a great uh, response. Um, just I want I want to chat with you about. I swear we're going to talk about the essay, Billy Dwelling and Acting, in a, in a second. But can you tell just can you tell me what the plain truth about common sense really is? I mean, I I, I laughed <laughs> out loud when I saw that title, you know, on your your online CV, and I just thought, right. oh, that's great. He's gonna he's gonna wrap it up for me. <laughs> well, the plain truth about common sense, you know, t- to um, to sweep away all the, the subtlety of my analysis, um, <laughs> just to the conclusion, the plain truth about common sense is that there isn't any. Okay. Um, so it's it's a kind of, uh, you know, the, um, G. E. Moore has this famous defense of common sense, which um, was was very convincing to a certain kind of philosopher, and uh, that was the thing I, I attacked in, in that. And uh, I took up what you might call, if it's not pejorative, a sort of postmodern position on common sense. Common sense is a kind of rhetorical um, move. It's not something that's sort of lying out there waiting for us to access it. Um, so that, it's not as funny as the title. Of the that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so when we when we say, well, you know, come on, Mark, it's just common sense. I mean, are we talking in a practical? You, I mean, I guess that's a moral sense, but are are we talking about some sort of um, misunderstanding about morality? Or uh, often, often indeed we are, and in fact, sometimes worse, we're we're committing ourselves to a kind of ideological move because you're not just making a claim with the idea that it might be a defensible one. You're making a claim in a way that puts it beyond any further challenge. Right? It's, it's what everybody believes or what we all know to be the case, <clears throat> the taken for granted. And so that that notion of common sense is actually the great ideological enemy of philosophy because. It's it's that all those ways of thinking that think that they're done thinking, uh, and you know a philosopher's job is is to really um, puncture that certainty right. that we right. we all know what we think about this. So that that uh, you know the, the article itself had a narrow focus, but uh, as a kind of way of going on, going after the presumptions of common sense, I think that's philosophy's job always. In uh, 2000, you wrote, uh, or maybe you wrote it much earlier than in 2000, but it's published in Queen's Quarterly, uh, an essay called Building, Dwelling, and Acting. I'm just going to quote your opening line, which I think is so wonderful. Quote, our urban surroundings cannot help but reflect the kind of society we live in and affect profoundly the mental architecture of our consciousness citizens. What, um, close quote, uh, could you, could you tell me what you're referring to as mental architecture, and then maybe comment a little bit on what our current maybe mental architecture is. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that, um, this that article from 2000 probably one of the earliest. Uh, well, let's see. I try to get the date straight, but it was one of certainly one of the earliest of my turns from sort of what you might call purely abstract political theory hmm. to what I sometimes think of as concrete political theory. Okay. Uh, with with a focus on urban and especially architecture, and so I've written a lot in that vein since then, uh, including a book of, of just about the Empire State Building in New York. Oh wow! And that's okay. Kind of a kind of series of of investigations, or um, I don't even know what to call the meditations, I guess, uh, that I called Concrete Reveries, which is about um, what I 
the subtitle is Consciousness in the City. So um, that article was kind of a promissory note for the books that came later. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. And uh, what I what I what I meant there, and what I found since is, uh, among other things, getting to know um, really interesting architects and urban theorists who uh, obviously know way more about how buildings and cities work than most of us do, and that's just fascinating to be around those people. Uh, but also to see just how invigorating, reinvigorating this is for political theory, to think of it in terms of what we all experience every day: right. sidewalks, yes. walls, concrete, traffic flow, you know, um, stores, offices, homes, rooms, corridors, chairs, tables. I mean, really basic stuff, concrete stuff. And to think about how that might be uh, part of our political conversation or, or political consciousness. So that's that's the idea of the, the mental architecture. I was playing on the word architecture, of sure. course, um, and so, I don't mean it. I don't mean architecture in the in the strict cognitive science sense. I should be clear. I'm not talking about you know how the the, the brain functions. I'm talking about the contours of thought and how we imagine ourselves. Right. And and sort of implying ultimately, I think uh, that these things, these pieces that we encounter each and every day, ha- are in fact. Uh, um, affecting the way we do things, how we interact with others, how we make decisions about well, politics, for instance, or as you call it, uh, phrase, beautiful phrase, this civic civic optimism. You know, yeah. got wonderful phrases throughout this essay. So, so did did you draw from um, Foucault on some for for some of this? Oh yeah, I mean, among many others. In fact, the, the I'd say the, the the richest, the deepest influences is one of the oldest, Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle in the, in the um, Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics is already thinking about this. He's thinking about how the specifics, he doesn't talk about architecture as such, but how the specifics of the way we live, you know, the concrete details of the way we live are p- politics. That is politics. Uh, not institutional or electoral politics, but what we would t- today call the political. Right? And so when you start mining that insight, uh, you find this really rich vein of thought that runs through um, all kinds of people in in, um, in the early modern period. You know, I talk a lot about Descartes in the in my book Concrete Reveries, uh, and then through into the 20th century. You mentioned Foucault, Bachelard's Poetics of Space is probably known to a lot of your listeners as as a, a high watermark of this kind of thinking, and then a lot of a lot of more recent stuff. Uh, it's really really rich, and and you can keep going back to it because there's there you know. Philosophers, especially political philosophers, have by and large uh, paid very little attention to this kind of concrete approach. So, so, so to root it, really, maybe simply, well, maybe not uh, simply, but uh, a manager uh, who you know is in charge of say ten or fifteen or twenty people in an office could 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 actually speak volumes by installing glass in the walls and leaving his or her doors open more often than not. It's a perfect kind of example, and that you know we all know these things because we witnessed them, right? We saw the growth of cubicle farms and in, in yes. office layouts. Cubicle um, farms. Yeah. Uh, we've seen we've seen other things in in the workplace, which is a particular area of of recent study, I should say. I've been thinking a lot about work and idleness, uh, but we've seen you know how leisure things are kind of folded into the work scene. So you have slides at the Google office, for example, and video games you can play anytime and. It's always casual Friday, and and all of these things are part of the fabric of of everyday life. Uh, but they all have meanings in terms of how we choose to spend our time or sell our time. You know, to sell our labor. Uh, you don't have to be an orthodox Marxist to see that. You know, there are all kinds of things going on that are not just 
choices. They, they are environments that we are reacting to. So if you expand that, that notion to think about, say, um, democratic politics, mm-hmm. uh, it's a really good question to ask of any city, you know, what does the actual fabric of the city right. do to the democratic politics there? You know, the public spaces, the, the, this, the transaction spaces, the, the various systems of circulation, you know, traffic and air and food and money and life and death for that matter. So uh, I find this just kind of endlessly fascinating. Well, yeah, and I, I would agree. I remember reading. I remember reading Discipline and Punish, and it's a it's a it's a tough book to get through. I seem to remember that it's quite a few years ago, and I've gone back to it a few times since. But it's it changed my life in some regards, uh, uh, from a, I guess an ideological perspective. Just looking at the impl- you know panopticism and looking at the implications of things and how we're being watched and all this, stuff, and you're just going, wow, this has to do with geometry. This has to do yeah. with, you know, how bizarre. And right. just, and, and, and as I started to unpack it, you kind of can see it everywhere. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, ben, the, the way Foucault uses Bentham's panopticon, which is really, you know, as you say, it's geometry. It's a polygon. A polygonal design will give us this ability to have one person watch many. Yes. And then eventually have no people watch many because they watch themselves. That's right. You know? it's just... uh, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's rightly celebrated as, as um, an important um, intellectual moment when Foucault sort of nails that idea. You can quibble with the details, but he was right about a lot of stuff. You yes, know, there's more CCTV yes, yeah. cameras. That's right. Not, yep. not so much in Toronto yet, but, you know, go to London. London, London has the highest yeah. per capita number of them. I'm reading, um, I was reading Adbusters recently, and I got this great quote, and I just wanted to, for, we're going to have to wrap it up soon, I think, but uh, Mondrian believed that if you made a picture that was without hierarchy, without foreground and background, center and periphery, that that picture could be a model for a better world. Yeah. It sounds to me like that's what you're saying in this essay, that this is about being better people, this is about uh, giving back, this is about making the right choices and the right decisions. I, I, it's exactly right, and I, I guess the, the one thing I would to add to that is that uh, for, for lots of good reasons, and this includes looking at what happens in urban design, we, we people are skeptical of utopian schemes of, of large plans, you know, and um, so everywhere from say, Plato's Republic and Thomas More to, to Le Corbusier's um, uh, New Modernism, but. But it's important not to lose the spirit of the utopian moment. Of that. So you, you might describe my politics as anti-anti-utopian. I, would, <laughs> I, want, to, I want to keep that, that spirit. You know, it's really the, it's the thing that you see in um, kind of neo-situationism of the Occupy movement, that, that um, regardless of what the lasting impact will be, we don't know what the lasting impact will be because it's, it's a kind of gesture in the first instance. And, and that's where all of the best aspects of the political start. They start with that insistence on things being better, that we can be better. Can I ask you one question about one of my favorite topics that I would love to chat with you at some other point down the road, and that's uh, the key to all philosophy, wonder. Um, I came across an essay that you wrote a a little while back on Husserl's uh, approach to wonder as this phenomenology of wonder, as you call it. Is it really the key to philosophy? And, and if so, what else do you think it can lead to? And the reason, the reason I ask the question is because I'm, I'm a new, well, new dad. I have a, a daughter that's five and a son that's seven that just blow me away with the questions they ask. That uh, are, 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 you know, one of the greatest gifts they're giving me is, and it sounds really trite in a way and cliche, but they're allowing me to see the world in a new way, in a new light. And I've I've practiced sleight of hand magic for years. So this oh, fascination yeah. with wonder, I just, I, I love this moment. 
yeah. that we seem to somehow lose somewhere along the way, you know, violated by the education of our youth or something. Anyway, uh, is it the key? And, and, and what else do you think it might lead to? Well, I, I do believe it's the key. And I, I always like to quote, um, there's a passage from one of Plato's dialogues where Socrates says that um, he's referring to the, way, the, the fact that the Greek word for wonder is thalmazine. And he says, it was a good etymologist who made thalmus the, the uh, uh, father of Iris. Um, and Thalmus was one of the demigods, and that's where Thalma, Thalmazine comes from. Uh, gives us our word thaumaturge, which is, you know, a kind of fancy word for magician. Uh, mm. for the Dungeons and Dragons geeks out there oh. don't know that one. Nice. Um, but, but that he gives rise to Iris, who is uh, the bringer of light and, uh, you know, the, the, the source of color. And so there's this, this nice idea that um, in its best possible form, that moment of wonder, which is, Actually, it's kind of scary, right? I mean, we, we tend to focus on the, the pleasant notion of wonder, but wonder is unsettling because precisely it shows us something we didn't expect to see. Yes. And then, and then in, in philosophers want to say, well, we take that and we try to move it to wisdom or to, to enlightenment. Um, but there, there's, you know, and, and um, uh, Bacon famously said wonder was broken science. So he thought that mm-hmm. wonder could get stalled, you know, so that you, you get sort of trapped in the wondrous and you don't do the hard work. Right. Well, isn't that, that's kind of what Descartes actually thought wonder was dangerous, didn't he? He did. And yeah. it's an interesting thing, um, partly because, you know, his, his focus was on trying to find the proper method for, right. for the new age. Right. And uh, uh, so he, he associated it with, with um, befuddlement and manipulation and superstition and so on. And, and th- those are possible misuses, I want to say, of wonder. You know, we all know the, take the magician example, we all know the magician who's actually a charlatan, who's, you know, duping people, um, it, rather than in a kind of honest way, we want to say honestly. That's right. Us, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where we, we're in on the joke because we take pleasure in not knowing how the illusion was, was created. Um, so those are all different possible outcomes of wonder. But in the philosophical way, yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's seeing some part of the world in a, in a new way. And it's, it's, I like to think it's what joins philosophy in that spirit with the, the best of art, you know, which can, as Arthur Danto put it, can transfigure the commonplace. Mm, that's wonderful. Take, yeah. take anything, including, of course, a, you know, a urinal or a Brillo box, and you right. can just get people to look at it in a new way. And uh, and that, I mean, that's you know, that's what I think that's what genius is really it's hmm. the ability to get people to experience that kind of wonder. Um, really poor segue here, but I'm going to close with a quote from your, uh, your essay, Building, Dwelling, and Acting, just because I love it so much. Uh, this is a time to act as well as to think, or perhaps more accurately, it is a time to act in order that thought should come once more, become possible. Uh, to uncover an activist discursive politics that is, as I shall put it, grimly utopian. That's just so wonderful, Mark. I, uh, I, I love uh, everything we've talked about here today. Thanks so much for being a guest. I, I, uh, I've often felt uh, doing these interviews that, wow, we've just barely scratched the surface. And that's, there's yeah, something, something kind of offensive about that, but also <laughs> something really quite wonderful about it. So thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And I, I feel the same way. I always feel like, you know, we're just getting started when we have to finish.